Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. With reported coronavirus deaths recently surpassing 3.75 million worldwide and confirmed cases affecting over 174 million people, the pandemic has wreaked havoc on nearly every aspect of our lives. But although COVID-19 cases have started to decline, there's another growing international pandemic that's much more difficult to inoculate against. In the world's largest democracies, Far-right movements that embrace violence, reject democracy, and target the vulnerable are on the rise. In a recent op-ed for Foreign Policy and Focus entitled Fascism's Global Spread is as Real as the Pandemics, Walden Bellow, a professor of sociology at SUNY Binghamton and co-founder of the Bangkok-based activist think tank Focus on the Global South, writes that the spread of fascism is real, as real as the spread of COVID-19, and you better believe it. Uh, I'm pleased that it brings him to our show now to discuss this troubling trend. Good afternoon. Hello, are you there? Uh, this is uh, maybe a problem because he is in the Philippines and uh, sometimes there are difficulties getting uh, a connection going. Professor Bello? Professor Bello is there. Are you hearing me, Professor Bello? Yes, yes. I just, uh, ah. you know, there was just a slight glitch here, but uh, okay. Yes, that's fine. I I hear you though. Okay. Well, uh, although Donald Trump is no longer president, at least in the eyes of the majority of Americans, the right wing remains strong in the United States and right wing movements are thriving in other countries. Do they present a possible threat of replacing neoliberal democracies? Uh, yes, I think that uh, the threat should be taken quite seriously. Um, if you look at what happened in uh, the United States on uh, January 6th this year, I think that um, one might say that uh, there was, you know, a really good chance at some point during those troubled days that um, there would not have been a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, mm -hmm. And in terms of um, the future of liberal democracy in um, a number of places in the world, uh, one might say that um, the, the threat in a place like India, which is, has always been uh, regarded as the world's largest democracy, uh, where you now have a Hindu nationalist um, uh, government that uh, targets Muslims as, you know, the you know uh, 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 a group that must be uh, contained and kept in place and if you look at another uh, traditional liberal democracy like the philippines uh, where you have a president uh, whose first three years in power involved killing more than twenty thousand uh, people uh, because he regarded them as, you know, the threat. Uh, and these were drug users and drug dealers. Uh, and if you consider what, you know, the, in, in Europe, the rise of um, uh, far-right parties at the expense of uh, uh, social democratic parties that... Um, uh, used to be the uh, parties of the working class, but have lost uh, a great deal of their members to uh, far right-wing parties. Then if you look at this global trend, uh, you cannot discount the fact, you know, that um, they do pose uh, an extremely serious threat uh, to existing liberal democracies. There's been an outcry uh, in this country in response to General Michael Flynn's suggestion that he'd like to see a coup in the United States similar to the one that took place in Myanmar. But might, be, might his thinking be a logical outgrowth of a growing form of fascist-leaning sentiment in this country? Well, um, 
I would say that um, the role and the influence of, of um, white supremacy uh, and uh, the way that uh, violence uh, uh, is very much you know, a central part uh, of white supremacist ideology uh, and the way that um, uh, white supremacy has now become the reigning ideology of the Republican Party, in my view. Um, yes, uh, you know, uh, I think this is, you know, this is um, what is definitely, a, you know, a fascist threat. Um, you know, the... I think over the last few years, uh, people have been surprised at the rapidity uh, with which, you know, white supremacist uh, thinking uh, has really spread uh, and the way that um, it uh, has taken over uh, for all intents and purposes. Well, isn't it always uh, there? Hasn't it always been there and just uh, uh, every so often... Uh, because of circumstances, it winds up rearing its ugly head once again. Uh, yes, I mean, you know, white. I don't think we know, that suddenly people are switching to becoming white supremacists. I think that there's always been that thread in this country, just as there's always been an anti-Semitic thread. And uh, yes, uh, and, yes, uh, but and, you know, I, I mean, I, I fully agree with you that uh, there's always been, you know, that thread. Uh, but the way that it has, you know, but, you know, gaining, you know, the, as a reigning ideology, um, one of the two parties of the United States, um, I think that's, you know, that's, you know, that's something definitely uh, new. Uh, it's, it's, I, I mean, you know, it's what we might call that, uh, you know, the white supremacist kind of thinking in terms of really, you know, becoming a threat. Uh, in a way that the Dixiecrats weren't really a threat. Have we lost you again? Well, uh, while we try to get him back, uh, let me tell my audience that my guest is Walden Bellow, who was uh, is a former uh, member of the House of Representatives in the Philippines. Hi, welcome back. You dropped out for a little bit. Right. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes, you're, I hear you again. So let me ask okay, you another yeah, question. Right. Uh, you, you say, uh, quote, for purposes of academic analysis, it might be legitimate to distinguish between a fascist-leaning movement and a truly fascist one, or a far-right regime and fascist regime, or an authoritarian populist and a fascist. So uh, what makes a regime fascist, and uh, is, is that word fascist bandied about too casually? Well, yes. Um the you know fascism or fascist uh, has been um, used almost like a synonym for any repressive so it can be used to dis to to describe a far right regime authoritarian but not necessarily one that is specifically fascist what yes. uh, what, uh, sorry, would, what I, would distinguish um, something uh, as fascist in particular. Yeah. Um, yes. I. I. There was that disconnection again, and and yeah. I'm sorry about this because I'm I'm joining <laughs> you from the Philippines, and I'm seem to be dropping off occasionally. Uh, I think Duterte but, is behind it. Yeah. That that that's <laughs> right. Uh, so as I as I was saying, um, you know, fascism oftentimes just refers when it is used to just any uh, kind of uh, repressive regime. But 
I, I do think, though, that, uh, you know, we really need to recover that meaning of fascism. And I, I listed five characteristics uh, of this. One is they show a disdain or hatred for democratic principles and procedures. Uh, two, they tolerate or promote violence. Three, they have a heated mass base that supports their own anti-democratic thinking and behavior. Four, they scapegoat and support persecution of certain social groups. And five, they are led by a charismatic individual who exhibits and normalizes all of the above. And so that is why I would say that it is the emergence of movements that fuses these five features that is a defining feature of our time in liberal democracies uh, throughout the world. You know, so um, uh, this is, you know, why uh, I would, um, I would um, specifically uh, use fascists for those movements and regimes that exhibit this uh, characteristics. I would not use fascists for, say, a military regime like the one in Myanmar. That is, you know, a military regime that's repressive, you know, but it really does not have a mass base. You know, I mean, it's, it's a pure military elite ruling over the whole of society, you know. So, nor would I use the word fascist for the... Um, military government that reigns in neighboring Thailand that is really a, a sort of a tool for the reigning monarchy and aristocracy in Thailand. Uh, so I would, I would therefore uh, not be liberal in my use of the word fascist, uh, you know, in order that we really, you know, see, we really apply this term to those um, uh, regimes and personalities that exhibit these traits, especially the fact that oftentimes they do have a very, very heated mass base. Um, they oftentimes appeal principally to the middle class, but not solely to the middle class. Uh, and they do have uh, charismatic individuals that lead them uh, and um, basically, you know, is able to catalyze uh, the resentments, uh, you know, that motivate them. So what do you attribute to the fact that we have seen this recent worldwide trend toward authoritarianism in Belarus, uh, in Hungary, Turkey, India, you mentioned, uh, we see it also in Syria, um, in some African countries and um, if we really want to to expand it, we could say in Florida and Texas and and Arizona. Mm. Well, I would say that um, um, a big part of the problem has been the inability of liberal democracies to uh, deliver uh, on you know the promise of real empowerment and real equality. Um, I would say that in the current period, if you look at, um, you know, for instance, Europe and the United States, uh, a big part of the problem has been uh, neoliberal um, uh, economic policies uh, that have uh, left um, large numbers of the population uh, in uh, poverty uh, uh, and just, um, you know, uh, almost with their heads above water. And, and fascists uh, don't, fascist regimes don't do that? Uh, no, no. I, oh, what I'm trying to say to you is, you know, that, um, that, uh, liberal democracies, uh, say neoliberal, um, um, neoliberal policies uh, have created uh, a base uh, for this fascist personalities uh, and movements. Now, uh, if they do come to power, and this is, as I think, your point, 
um, what often happens is, you know, that um, certain sectors of the population, or let's say the majority group, uh, the majority racial group, um, uh, are, you know, given special privileges, but at the expense of minorities. Uh, and I think that um, what we have seen, for instance, the appeal uh, of uh, far right-wing groups, say in Europe and the United States at this point, is basically to say that, hey, um, you know, um, you know, we, you know, there are all of this you know, privileges that can be enjoyed by the majority population. Uh, but, you know, it is not something that is extended to immigrants, to people of color, uh, and to others that do not share the features of the majority group. And that's, I think, one of the characteristics that, that we've seen both in past fascist regimes, as well as the fascist movements and personalities uh, that have uh, emerged in more recent times. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Walton Bellow, professor of sociology at SUNY Binghamton, um, former member of the Philippine House of Representatives and co-founder of uh, the think tank Focus on the Global South. We're discussing uh, some of the ideas expressed in a number of his articles, but mostly uh, in one uh, titled Fascism, the Global Spread, as it is uh, is as real as the pandemics. Uh, when, uh, well, didn't pundits uh, dismiss Trump, Duterte, Viktor Orban in Hungary, uh, Narendra Modi in India, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil as flukes? Well, I, I think that, yes, um, you know, it was uh, uh, if if you look at uh, Trump, uh, for instance. Um, first of all, um, there were very very few pundits who expected him to come to power, sure. uh, or and expected that the you know white working class, uh, especially in the deindustrialized areas of the United States in the Midwest. Uh, you know, would, you know, support him. And I believe that the only prominent uh, uh, social observer uh, that really uh, was very worried about this was the filmmaker Michael Moore. Um, the, then after he came to power, there was the expectation that, you know, the traditions of American liberal democracy would tame the guy uh, and make him a proper American president. Uh, but in fact, that did not happen and it just kept on getting worse in terms of his uh, uh, subversion uh, and brazen contempt uh, for some of the uh, uh, traditions of, of a liberal democracy. Of course, people would say that these traditions or the so-called guardrails of democracy are in many ways hypocritical. But I think in terms of expressing brazen contempt for them, um, Trump was, you know, something quite uh, new. So um, Jair Bolsonaro was, uh, you know, um, was uh, dismissed uh, as some guy who just uh, was uh, a parliamentary um, uh, person in 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 the back benches, uh, who uh, had um, you know who was fairly obscure, but uh, and who seemed to represent you know a real um, oddity in terms of brazenly declaring himself as very nostalgic for the Brazilian military dictatorship in the 60s and the 70s. So there was this um, uh, initial sense uh, among many, you know, that these personalities uh, were, um, you know, not serious uh, 
um, contenders for political power. Uh, and he uh, and he has a, a declared war to some degree on the indigenous people of Brazil, yes, yes. which would make well, him similar to so many of the other people that you were talking about who go after minorities. Right. Uh, yes, and uh, both the indigenous people and the and and the environment uh, and um, so yes. Um, it, it, uh, Although you know when it 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 came to let's say um, the um, uh, Hindu nationalism as represented you know by uh, Narendra Modi in 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 India um, that has been a phenomenon that you know has been you know on the rise for. Um, a couple of years and decades. He accused Muslims uh, of seducing Hindu girls in love jihads. Yes. Uh, so he has really, you know, this 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 appeal to the Hindu majority uh, in in India. Uh, uh, that uh, you know that has become very overpowering uh, in terms of. Uh, what has you know what has overtaken India at this point in time? So um, you know, so uh, you know, some of these people have initially been regarded as kooks. Uh, some of them, however, already gave a sign, you know, that you know they would rule in a very violent way. If you remember, uh, Modi uh, was the um, uh, chief minister. Uh, of an Indian state, uh, you know, uh, in the early uh, 2000s. And he uh, presided, you know, over, you know, the um, real uh, pogrom uh, that hit um, Muslims uh, in this area. Uh, and something like 2,000 to 3,000 um, uh, um, uh, Muslims who perished in, in this racial uh, I mean, in 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 this religious, uh, uh, you know, uh, pogrom. So, so yes, there are some differences in the sense, you know, that some were really regarded as improbable uh, in terms of their coming to power, whereas others, uh, you know, were, you know, uh, uh, you know, already had shown that they had mass appeal uh, several years before they became heads of their country. Well, you, you've talked about Muslims as victims. So what about when Muslims are the victimizers? Would you say ISIS was a fascist movement? Well, um, I would, I would, I haven't really thought about that. But yes, um, uh, I, I would say that, uh, that uh, ISIS did uh, exhibit, you know, characteristics of, uh, you know, uh, of of fascism, but probably um, because of the centrality of extreme fundamentalist uh, fundamentalism in ISIS, I would probably uh, say that uh, although it exhibited certain fascist characteristics, it probably was in a league of its own. Now, uh, we uh, have all these groups in this country, uh, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers. It's hard for any, for most people uh, who are not members of QAnon to understand why uh, the people who do subscribe to its ideas uh, believe in uh, the pedophilia and the drink, killing babies and drinking their blood and so many other crazy things that uh, QAnon uh, is claiming. But um, is a certain level of irrationality part of this kind of fascist idea of sensibility? Uh, yes, I would definitely say so. Um, I, the thing is that, you know, the way that political scientists, you know, have... Um, um, have looked at, you know, um, the give and take of, say, democratic politics um, uh, has been, you know, that citizens are uh, 
rationally calculating uh, um, figures uh, that vote in terms of their, uh, you know, what they perceive to be their uh, economic uh, political interests, you know. So, um, but um, that's been sort of the model of the citizen in uh, democracies, you know. Um, in fact, you know, that model, I think, no longer holds. Irrationality is as much part of politics as rationality. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, the, you know, the way that, uh, for instance, uh, quite a number of uh, people uh, who you would say would belong to the working class and who whose interests would be you know, served by supporting unions, by supporting progressive parties, but instead um, uh, support, um, you know, movements or personalities, you know, that uh, uh, in fact uh, do not bring them the economic benefits that you would expect they would benefit, would gain from. Well, nine uh, years ago put their uh, trust in fascist personalities that uh, support persecution of people uh, that they should be uniting with. Uh, yes, that I think is, you know, uh, a mark uh, of um, the kind of irrationality, uh, you know, that now pervades many of these movements and which uh, is a driving force in the rights of fascists and, and QAnon and others. Nine years ago, the United States, India, Brazil, and the Philippines were four of the seven biggest democracies in the world. But haven't some, not only socialists, been predicting the end of capitalism for well over a century? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Uh, haven't uh, some people, uh, not only socialists, been predicting the end of capitalism for well over a century? Are we seeing to some degree uh, you mentioned neoliberalism, but uh, is this really about capitalism? Uh, well, um, I think capitalism and the crisis of capitalism uh, uh, and neoliberalism, you know, are, are certainly part of the story uh, uh, in the sense that they really have torn apart uh, societies. Um, but at the same time, I think that we really need to go beyond seeing these movements, you know, as mechanically just, you know, uh, um, uh, emanations of the crisis of capitalism. Uh, you know, for instance, you know, the, the middle class, uh, uh, I think that uh, a great part of their, uh, you know, of the fact that they are central parts of this movement, uh, you know, of, of fascist movements, you know, comes from a lot of resentments, you know, a lot of resentments mm -hmm. against working class people, a lot of resentments against the elite, and they see fascist personalities are sort of catalyzing or bringing together, you know, the resentments that they uh, carry. So. There used to be an analysis that fascism was simply just uh, um, a political movement of monopoly capitalism of the big elite, you know. But I, I think they did not, uh, you know, this analyst did not put proper consideration uh, into the political psychology of these movements, and they were not just uh, instruments or they have not just been instruments of monopoly capitalists, you know, you know, they have a dynamic of their own that stems from all the accumulation of resentments of certain social groups. So we have to go beyond just an analysis of these movements as being instrumentally oriented by big elites and look at the fact that they have dynamics of their own that are built on an accumulation of resentments against all different social classes, racial groups, and cultural groups. 
You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I was gonna fight fascism. I was gonna. Of course I was gonna fight, but I was really angry with the other people fighting fascism, so I just went on Facebook and said nasty things instead. I was gonna fight fascism. I was gonna. My guest on today's Let It Locate at Large is Walden Bellows, a professor of sociology at SUNY Binghamton. Uh, and we are discussing some of the ideas in a recent article of his called Fascism's Global Spread is as Real as the Pandemics, and some of the other articles that he has written recently on neoliberalism and uh, 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 related matters that have been coming up in this conversation. Uh, Professor Bello, Donald Trump reportedly branded, repeatedly branded journalists as enemies of the people and hasn't Rodrigo Duterte accused journalists and critics of plotting against him in the Philippines? Uh, you know, um, Duterte has um, uh, also, um, you know, called uh, many people in the press and, you know, his enemies as uh, promoting uh, fake news. Uh, so in, in many ways, he, you know, is, you know, uh, using the train Trump line of saying that, you know, there is a, you know, a conspiracy, uh, against him by, you know, members of the traditional media. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in fact, he has, um, um, shut down, uh, the, you know, the biggest uh, television network in the country uh, for a number of reasons, but mainly because uh, it would not uh, tow uh, his line. So I think what distinguishes uh, Duterte uh, and his group has been the way that they have been able to orchestrate and dominate social media uh, in order to present um, um, an alternative reality uh, to um, to Filipinos, that what is bad is good, and what is good uh, is bad. I think this has happened in other countries to the ability of far right wing groups far ahead of the left to be able to use social media to be able to present you know, this alternative reality of what is really uh, going on. Now, having said that, uh, I would say that uh, the appeal of these people is not just based on lies. It's not just based on their ability to orchestrate, you know, uh, social media. Uh, I think, uh, and I, I keep on coming back to this all the time, is that in a way the success of these people like Trump is you know because you know they are able to personify you know the resentments that motivate these people um, that you know these resentments are there they've been floating around uh, but the skill of people like Trump is that they are able to uh, to to articulate, you know, these themes that then bring out the worst uh, in these people and move them in this, you know, in many ways, uh, you know, uh, an irrational uh, direction. So, um, yes, uh, I, I would, you know, uh, you know, definitely say that uh, this, um, uh, this campaign against uh, the traditional media is not something that is limited to the United States, but you do see that uh, in other places, including uh, the Philippines with Duterte. Well, you were part of the movement against Ferdinand Marcos 
And uh, I wonder what happened after you warned before the 2016 elections that Rodrigo Duterte would be another Marcos. And after you wrote two months into his presidency that Duterte was a fascist original. So he's different than Marcos? Yes, Marcos really did not have a heated mass base. Marcos was more of a traditional authoritarian type guy um, who was ruling with the aid of the military and you know the 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 uh, police. Uh, when I used he would be another Marcos, you know, I uh, already um, saw you know that. Uh, he would be somebody who would exercise repressiveness or repression in the way that Marcos did. What uh, I only just came to realize during the campaign um, was, you know, that he had, you know, this heated base, uh, you know, that was supported, supportive of him. Uh, and um, this base, you know, which, you know, 40% of the electorate, uh, in fact, went for Duterte, and he had a lot of support, especially from overseas Filipino workers. You know, so so Marcos never really had you know that kind of support. He ruled more from the top uh, in terms of uh, you know using the uh, armed forces of the Philippines. Uh, with Duterte, you know, he has, because of this base and his coming through power through democratic elections, um, he uses this democratic legitimacy uh, in order to, in fact, um, shut down uh, and to subvert, uh, you know, democratic uh, institutions. So, um, and it is this, you know, this democratic legitimacy, the, the, the legitimacy that he has derived through two elections, 2016, which was the presidential election, and 2019, when his uh, people associated with him uh, swept to power uh, in a very big way. Uh, uh, you know, so, so you see, it, it's this, it's this, it's this legitimacy that he derives from democratic processes that ironically then he is used in order to be able to subvert democratic institutions. And that is, you know, something that was not there when it came to uh, Marcos. Now, although Putin was a part of the communist apparatus, he uh, is not ruling like a communist. Uh, would you say that he has fascist tendencies? Well, there have been, in fact, uh, you know, uh, people who have been writing about uh, uh, Putin that, uh, you know, that would say that he is, you know, he, he has fascist tendencies. Um, I, I think one of the things that, uh, that um, we've seen about Putin is how much... Um, uh, it's not just he is able to instrumentalize his rule um, and using, um, you know, the traditional repressive agencies of the state. Uh, I think to look at Putin that way, uh, you know, would would be a, a very very narrow way of looking at him. I I think that uh, he does enjoy a great deal of support from you know the the pop the russian population for a for a number of you know different reasons uh including the fact that you know when uh, you know you had you know this uh neoliberalism classic neoliberalism that was imposed on russia after the collapse of the soviet union it 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 was so bad in terms of its uh, economic effects that when Putin, you know, came to power, in many ways, people associated him uh, with uh, having, uh, quote unquote, saved Russia, you know, from, you know, this sort of dog-eat-dog -dog type of, of, of capitalism. So, 
so I would I would therefore say that you know if we look at Putin as just somebody who's repressive, we will be missing you know the fact that there is a great deal of support, as I understand, uh, you know, for him, uh, you know, within the you know the Russian uh, population at this point in time, and I would just like to stress again you know, the fact that this heated base, this active base of support is really one of the distinguishing characteristics of, 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 of fascism. We're seeing it in Central Europe as well. I'm assuming to some degree in response to what you were saying, the imposition of neoliberalism after the fall of communism. But yes. then what about a country like Germany where there's been a resurgence of, uh, of Nazism, um, how have the leaders of the alternative for Deutschland uh, in Germany attempted to look more mainstream? Is that their way of, of promoting fascism? Well, um, if, if we look at, you know, um, what's happening in Western Europe at this point in time, I think uh, several things, uh, and, and this would include Germany, but not only Germany. One is, um, uh, you know, these are societies that have been scarred by, you know, uh, two decades of uh, neoliberal uh, uh, economic rule. A right winger uh, just slapped Macron's face yesterday. Sorry? A right, um, a, a very right-wing young man slapped yeah. French President Macron's face yesterday. Yeah, right. Yeah, so you know, so there's that element of neoliberalism of having suffered from neoliberalism. There's also an element that we must also look at that um, uh, where people, you know, feel that uh, they're being ruled from Brussels by a technocracy that is not elected, you know, the EU, the European Union, the European Commission. But the most important thing I think has been the racial and cultural aspect here, uh, the demonization, you know, the fear of Islam, uh, the fear of, you know, you know, of, of uh, you know, the, the growing fear or, or the fear of the growing uh, weight um, of people of, you know, the uh, Islamic faith uh, in a sense that they do not belong and that, uh, in fact, you know, that they are taking over the, um, you know, what should be the privileges of the majority, the cultural and ethnic majority. So. I guess my point here is that it is the anti-immigrant, you know, sentiment, you know, that is central in motivating mm -hmm. uh, the uh, the changes uh, in, you know, the uh, politics uh, in Europe at this point in time. Hitler uh, admired course, American immigration policies uh, in the in the thirties, the restrictive immigration policies. So I guess this is yeah. nothing new. But let me tell people that my guest on today's Leonard Lopate show at large show is Walden Bellow, and we're talking about fascism and neoliberalism and whatever else. Uh, this is BAI ninety nine point five FM streaming live at wbai.org. So what might replace neoliberalism? Um, well, who are the architects of alternatives to neoliberalism that you think uh, might be acceptable? And is this really a matter of the global north versus the global south? Well, uh, you know, the um, if you look at, um, you know, some of the differences at this point between, you know, the the fascist movements in the global south and the global north. Um, in the global south, um, you know, both Modi and India uh, and Duterte in the Philippines, uh, to a great extent, they still have been promoting, uh, 
neoliberal programs. Um, in uh, you know the global north, however, um, a number of the fascist movements and far right movements have um, uh, abandoned uh, you know classical neoliberal uh, you know uh, uh, neoliberal uh, um, uh, kind of programs uh, that used to be. Uh, espoused by the center right, and even have cherry picked a number of the progressive positions of the left, the the anti-globalization, for instance, uh, parts of the welfare state agenda, uh, and put them together uh, in a way that basically appeals to people like saying that, hey, you of the dominant ethnic stock, uh, you know, uh, you will enjoy all of these privileges, but, you know, this is something that will not be shared with those who are new, those who have just come in, those who do not belong to the majority. So basically, in a sense, this was what Nazism was all about, right? National socialism in the sense that shared prosperity for the majority population and persecution for the minorities. So that is you know, you know, the kind of appeal, uh, you know, that uh, you find with fascist movements, both in Europe and the United States at this point in time. There's still, of course, there's still uh, regimes within uh, a capitalist system, uh, but, you know, uh, 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 you know, but within a capitalist system that, you know, uh, accommodates, you know, the resentments, uh, of the majority population vis-a-vis uh, -vis what is perceived to be the inroads that have been made by the minorities. And I, I cannot uh, stress this enough, you know, that what you really have at this point uh, in the United States is a very strong sense among the white population that they're becoming uh, 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 you know, demographically disadvantaged and, you know, that it might just be a matter of time uh, before they become the minority. Now, this is, of course, you know, uh, you know, something that people would say is, uh, you know, nonsense, but that is a big fear that uh, is, in fact, promoting, you know, the appeal uh, of uh, white supremacy, uh, although, Oftentimes, it is not expressed in such brazen terms. So we only have racism. a couple of we only have a couple racism. of minutes left. Yeah, yeah they, they, they're they're targeting they target non-white migrants. Uh, but I, I want to address one other thing in the few minutes that we have but not left. No, not, no, but not only non-white migrants. I mean, you know, we're talking about you know the continuing uh, inability to accommodate you know uh, the Afro-American mm -hmm. population. Yeah. Just one other thing uh, in, in the next last two minutes or so. You spoke recently sure. at the Asia Europe People's Forum about the impact of COVID on China's rise in the global economy. Um, now, China's done rather well. Is it developing its own version of neoliberalism, a kind of a Chinese neoliberalism that might even replace American neoliberalism? Well, what you have in uh, China is, you know, a state-led uh, capitalism. Uh, uh, you know, basically what what we saw in China, and if I may just elaborate on this a bit, um, uh, has been, you know, a devil's bargain, if you might call it, uh, between the elite of the Communist Party uh, and uh, transnational corporations that was sealed, um, you know, during the 1990s and, you know, up till today, which was, you know, that uh, China basically offered the super exploitation of the working class um, in China uh, in return for capitalist, comprehensive capitalist uh, development uh, in which the state would play a very important role in terms of technology transfer and different other things. And I think 
China has been uh, quite successful at that, uh, enough to create now the second largest economy in the world. Uh, and in fact, Soon now it first. is the center of, of global capital accumulation, far more dynamic than the United States. So um, it is a model, let me say this, that uh, it is a model that uh, is appealing to many countries in you know, the global south who have been devastated by neoliberalism. Uh, you know, this, this kind of capitalism led by the state, no longer revolutionary, uh, but nevertheless uh, is able to deliver a certain degree of prosperity and in fact eliminate, uh, not eliminate totally, but eliminate significantly, uh, uh, um, uh, bring num uh, great numbers of people up from poverty at the same time that you have a very unequal distribution of income. So it's-, it's, well, we, it's we, we have to leave it there, unfortunately. Uh, sorry, Professor Bello, we have to leave it there. We've run out of time. Okay. Walden Bello is a professor of sociology at SUNY Binghamton. We've been discussing the ideas in an article, recent article of his fascism, global spread is as real as the pandemics. And we've been talking about some of the other uh, things that he's been doing recently. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you. And I hope uh, we can come up with some kind of a vaccine uh, to treat fascism. <laughs> Thank you so sure. much for being on our show. Yes, thanks a lot. And I'll, uh, it's now 2 a.m. here in Manila, so <laughs> let me go to sleep. And thank you go very much for inviting me. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Hugh Sansom for his help in preparing today's interview. If you'd like to hear more of our one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else that podcasts are available. Or you can uh, you can also find links to our more than 500 past shows on our website, lendedlocatedlarge.com. And if you'd like to write to me, you can email me at Leonard Lopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a tax-deductible contribution of whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 right now to keep this historic station the only one on the new york radio dial that's 100 percent listener sponsored help us keep it on the air and one great way to show your support for what we do on let it Pit at large is to become a sustaining member what we call a BAI buddy it's a way to provide this station with a steady stream of support something we need now more than ever but however you choose to donate what matters is that you join your fellow listeners who keep this alternative to corporate radio alive and well. And as I'm sure you understand, we need your help now more than ever during this current crisis. Again, the number to call to make that tax-deductible contribution is 212-209-2950, or you can go online to give to wbai.org. But please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And thank you so much. And I hope you can join us for tomorrow's show when journalist and author Julia E. Swig will discuss her illuminating new book and podcast, Lady Bird Johnson, Hiding in Plain Sight. We'll see you then.